0: you bible please turn with me to proverbs chapter 30 we'll be looking at two verses there uh three verses seven to nine there's an outline of the sermon in the bulletin if that helps you follow along let's stand to honor god's word and give you a chance to stretch your feet just for a second let's stand together for the reading of god's word Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal, and profane the name of my God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you've been to the mall recently, you may have seen some of the new signs in the store windows. For example, there's a clothing store at the mall that says, Don't buy our product unless you really need it. Uh, Down the way, there's the restaurant and then a sign in the window there that says, eat only here if it fits your budget. The cell phone store, did you see that sign? Don't buy a new phone. Enjoy the one you already have. And it's a jewelry store. Purchase something here only after you have adorned your heart with beauty. Did you see those signs? Uh, You did not. I made them up to make the point that we are surrounded with the voices of discontent, both from without, newer, better, faster, bigger, and from within. You have a yearning. There is a restless in you for a little more of this, a little less of that. I'll be filled when I have a more satisfying job, house, spouse, church, body image, social currency, you name it. How are you processing the noise? Have you come to the place where you prayed Lord, don't give me too much. Has anyone ever prayed that? (laughs) Well, this guy has. Help me enjoy less, Lord, so I can give more sacrificially. Beloved, do you have the resources to produce joy and peace and equilibrium in a culture that is brimming over with discontent? this text invites you to find a fruitful way to enjoy what you have and not long for what you don't have. In the English language, we have a word for that. Wanting what you have and not wanting what you don't have. And that word is contentment. And the humble heart longs for contentment because contentment Liberates you from the urge to consume or self indulge. Contentment liberates you not to fret over not having enough. It liberates you from lusting after the latest, envying the prosperous, tantalizing your senses, fudging on your giving, or spending impulsively out of self pity. Contentment is very, very practical. And this text, I want to show you, gives you three graces that are indispensable to living humbly, contentedly before the Lord. First grace, wisdom. Contentment, possessing what you have in a way that it doesn't possess you, is a wisdom issue. This prayer appears in what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible. Knowing how to find peace and join equilibrium in, a, in the midst of a materialistic culture, constantly bombarded with the voices of discontent, is a wisdom issue. What is biblical wisdom? Biblical wisdom is concerned with, number one, knowledge, what you know, skill, what you do, and character, who you are. Wisdom is is knowing, what do I do when the rules don't apply? We have the law of God. It structures life in a very good way. The law of God says, live here and you'll stay on the path of life. But in these many areas of life where there's latitude and freedom and how you express things and how much of it you have, things like money, your use of words, your use of time, sexuality, friends, work, conflict, emotions, food, alcohol, guidance, all these things we need wisdom and God's word supplies insight teaching you how to make distinctions that's one of the Hebrew words for wisdom making distinctions or forming plans realistically here's a silly example should I try out for the NBA who's laughing (laughs) well I like basketball but the reality is what I am too old too slow too weak and too inexperienced and too untalented to play in the NBA. That would be a fool's choice. So wisdom is concerned with these intractable principles by which God has wired the world in which you live. And it's concerned with the principles God God reveals to you in his word. Word. So notice that Agar's main concern is God. He doesn't want to offend God. He has what theologians call a theocentric worldview. He understands that that God is the reality at the center of all of life. And when we live our lives in conformity with the way God has designed life to work, you find the path of life, or you might call it, wisdom, the science of living blessedly. Here's how I use the wisdom literature. When I get up in the morning, I assume that my spiritual vision, understanding life the way God has showed himself and the what I'm supposed to be and the way life works, I assume that it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle that you've put together but then you've sort of undone all the pieces over a, 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 a table. And the word of God, and Proverbs in particular, when I read it, God brings the picture back together so I see him, I see the way he's designed me to live, I see myself in relation to God and my neighbor. Things become clear about the way God has made life in his word and particularly the book of Proverbs. Because God wants me to see the way he sees, (laughs) And I'm helpless to see the way God sees apart from his word. The humble know they are bound to get it wrong if God doesn't shed light on their path. If God's word doesn't instruct how we're supposed to find satisfaction and enjoyment and meaning and significance and security in this life. The fool says, oh, I'll construct the picture the way I want. I have to be true to myself. And yet, because God loves you in his word, he gives you a clear picture of what life is. And there's nothing sadder than a blurry vision of something beautiful. The way God made his life to be lived is beautiful. And we don't want to see it with blurry eyes. Proverbs ultimately points forward to the organizing principle at the center of all of reality and wisdom, and that is a person, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul tells us in Colossians 2. Jesus Christ is the the center of God's revelation because he's the only truly wise man to ever live. He's the only man to walk the path of life blamelessly before his Father. He's the only hope for people who know wisdom cannot save me. Wisdom cannot cleanse me of my sin. Wisdom cannot f- forgive me. Wisdom cannot make me righteous. I need those gifts of God's grace, and they are found only in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ is the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness we who bumble along the path of life so desperately need. That's that's the first indispensable element to finding humble contentment. Wisdom. Secondly, humble requests. How do you know this is a prayer from a humble person's heart? How do you know? Well, you sense the desperation, right? You sense he knows his own frailty. He knows that left to himself, he's going to live selfishly and self indulgently. The humble are skeptical of their motives. They know the heart is deceitful, and particularly when it comes to the subject of wealth. Notice how it begins Don't refuse me. There is an urgency, there is a desperation, there is a down to earth earnestness in this prayer. This man believes he is not exempt from humanity's proclivity to underestimate the power of wealth on your heart. See, some of you will read this prayer and you'll go, this is basically a prayer that says, don't give me too much, don't give, don't make, let me be middle class. It's a prayer for middle class, kind of, sort of. Some of you are going to read that and they'll go, Lord, you know me. I can handle wealth. Come on, try it. Make me rich. I'm going to prove the norm wrong. I'm the exception. Not this man. Not this man. The Lord does not despise your desperation. You go to Jesus saying, Man, money's too strong for me. My heart's too weak for this. He does not despise it. Because it's our—it's only the Holy Spirit who makes you know you're desperate anyway. And it's in our desperation that we know how much we need Jesus. And we see through God's word our misplaced loyalties. So in your discontentment, ask this question. If my heart was filled with the love of Jesus, would I be content? And I ask that question on the basis of Psalm 63 where David says... Lord, your steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, it's got to be better than anything. What would you be like if your heart was filled with the love of Jesus? Here's the evidence it is, and it's the two humble requests, and they come in these two verbs in the text. Keep me from and give me keep has to do with the motives of the heart, give has to do with circumstances. What is the connection between your motives and your circumstances? Your character shapes your response to circumstances. So let's look at these two requests in kind. First he says, keep deception and lies far from me. Why? Certain ideas seem valid, but under close examination prove to be lies. Some ideas are appealing and can fool us to being true when they are in fact or not. Satan can dress up sin in virtue's colors. And many lies are beautifully landscaped with truths. But there's a lie behind it. So he, he says, keep deception and lies far from me. I don't even want to be able to see them because I'm so weak. I could be tempted if they became clear. Keep them far far from me, that raises this question, beloved. How would you recognize a truth about money from a lie about money? How would you recognize? Only from God's word. What God's word has to say about money, everything and not just select passages. Now, where do I get that from the text? Just back up two verses in Proverbs 30. He writes, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. It's, what a beautiful image. The word of God is a shield to your soul. And it's enough of a shield. There's enough, there's enough metal in that shield to protect you. You don't need to add to it and far be it for me to take away from it. The word of God, what a shield. That's why at this church... We long to take up the Word of God every day. We need to be shielded every day from the lies that constantly bombard us. So I want you to think about the truths in God's Word about money as tying your shoes. Boys and girls, you tie your shoes by doing what? You pull on one lace, and what do you do next? You pull on the other lace. I want you to think about looking at the truths of money as wrapping around your heart. On the one hand, the warnings in God's word about the dangers of wealth, pull that over your heart. And then I want you to pull on the other side, the blessings God pronounces on wealth. And you don't have that shield until you have both of those. You can't walk on this earth with healthy, vital feet without both of those truths wrapped around your heart. Then you're safe to enjoy what God gives you. So for example, here are the warnings. The wise man is rich in his own eyes. Excuse me, the rich man is wise in his own eyes. That tells you that money tends to make people feel above the law. He who trusts in his riches will fall. The righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Money can give you a false sense of security. A rich man's wealth is like a strong city, a high wall in his own imagination. The more wealth you have, the more you tend to feel invincible. Invincible can't touch me. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Friends, there aren't a trillion dollars anyone ever could have that would save them from an ounce of sin. These warnings are echoed in the New Testament. Hebrews 13.5, make sure your character is free from the love of money. If you have a good income in this world, What are you doing to make sure your character is free from the love of money? Do you assume if you have a good income? Well, you don't need to have a good income to love money, do you? The love of money tempts all of us from having nothing to having a lot. What are you doing to make sure your character is not free from the love of money? Anything? One of the last things we do is talk to our friends about it. (laughs) Tim Keller says that in all his years in New York City... Uh, he had p- people come and confess their struggles and their sins to him. And he said, never had, he any- had anyone come and confess the sin of greed to him. They don't confess greed. Are they struggling with greed? Of course they are. 1 Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare in many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil." Okay, hey, tie these truths around your heart and you'll be safe. The word of God will be a shield to you. Warnings about the dangers of wealth. And now you've you got to tighten that and equalize that with pronouncements of blessings about, of, uh, on wealth. Proverbs 10:22. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. God made you rich. He blessed you. If there's sorrow in it, that isn't from him. It's got to have something to do with you. Proverbs says, the generous man will be prosperous, as a rule. That's true. That's not the reason to be generous. The reason to be generous is to reflect the glory of the God who is generous. (laughs) But as a rule, generous people will be prosperous. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, as a rule. And a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That means as I get closer to my old age... Janice and I want to have money left for our kids, Lord willing, and for their kids. That bumper sticker you see on RVs, we're spending our children's inheritance, you don't find that in the Bible. So what lies tempt you and me as regards money? Here's the lies I've seen as a pastor in my counseling office. Uh, This lie, I'll be happy and content with just a little more money. How much more? Just a little more. God wants me rich. If you believe that, make sure you put on your mailbox Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. The more I get, the more I give. Maybe. You should give more if you earn more. And how about this one? After I tithe, I can do whatever I want with my money. After you tithe, it's still God's money. And you're a steward of what you do with it. What's the point, beloved? The breadth of God's word saves you from being deceived by money. And the wise person says, yes, keep me from the lies. They're too strong for me. I'm too weak for them. Money, Lord, on your terms, not mine. Did do you see, it's as if money puts you on a balance beam. And you've got to grab on one hand the warnings, on the other hand the blessings. And there's another person who can help you stay balanced, and it's Lady Wisdom. And we meet her in Proverbs 3. She prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Lady Wisdom says, in my right hand is long life, and in my left hand riches and honor. Lady Wisdom is saying, take both of my hands before you take your paycheck. Take them both. Take money from the hand of God, where it's come from, and you'll balance your life with whatever wealth gives you. That's a promise. It's a good promise. The second humble request here is give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's my portion. Do you recognize in the prayers of Jesus any echoing of this? Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. God is committed to meeting your needs. He wants to meet your needs. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, if we have food and shelter, we can be content. If you don't have food and shelter, you should be discontent. Because you need those basic needs. And God is committed to meeting those basic needs. He's a God who loves his kids. He wants them sheltered and he wants them fed. So contentment is then desiring what you have, not desiring what you don't have. So I have to, I'm a guy that's not naturally content. This is a besetting sin. So I have to go before the Lord and say, okay, okay, Let's do some heart diagnosis here. If if I'm desiring a different whatever, fill in the blank, car, job, marriage, church, let's just pick spouse. I'm not desiring a different spouse. I love this woman. But the rest of you, (laughs) just bear with me. If I'm desiring a different spouse, I will invariably look for reasons to justify my case. I'll find out the things that are wrong with him or her. Right? Rather than what? Focus on the things that are good about them. So the sage is saying poverty may drive him to steal to meet his needs. And why is that profaning the name of the Lord? Because if I steal to meet my needs, I'm saying something about the nature of God that is false. And that is God won't meet my needs by lawful means. I'm saying God is a thief if I'm sanctifying, as it were, an unrighteous way of meeting my needs. On the other hand, though, there's one extreme. I don't want poverty. That could tempt me to steal. On the other hand, I don't want riches. What could that tempt you to do? Deny the Lord. Say, who is the Lord? Because when you're full, you tend to be complacent. What ought you... So where's our college students? Raise your hands, college students. We love you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Keep them up. Are you coming to the lunch afterwards at the miners? Coming to the lunch afterwards at the miners? Yes. Are you going to be full when you leave the miners? Yes, because Marcy knows how to put on a good spread. Let me tell you. When Marcy Martin fixes a lunch, it's going to be awesome. When you're full, what should you say? What should you say? You will be tempted to not think about the Lord. What should you say when you're full? Thank you. I am tremendously blessed to have this food. Why me? Why should I, of all people, have a plateful of food that satisfies me? Lord, thank you that the meal we just enjoyed is a picture of the super abounding grace of Jesus, whose mercy is boundless, whose forgiveness is immeasurable, whose love is limitless. <laughs> he just gave you a picture of the gospel in that plateful of food. And Lord, since I'm so full, let me give back to you in kind something of how you've met my needs. That's the soil in the heart. That produces humble ambition. So you work, you have enough money to live on. You work, you have enough money to give. You work, you have enough money for your grandchildren. You work, and you watch over your heart that it's not deceived by your income. Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6 as for the rich in this present age, that probably, according to the world, stands up with most of us. As to the rich in this present age, instruct them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who supplies us with uh, everything to enjoy. Here's the last indispensable element to finding humble contentment. And that is the faithful use of money. Faithful use of money. It's ironic that the selfish use of money tends to produce what? What? When we're self-indulgent with our resources, what does it tend to produce? More discontentment. I mean, isn't that what we call the materialistic trap? The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less satisfied you are with what you have. I need to trade us in for bigger, better, faster, smoother, or whatever. I mean faithful in two senses, and this will finish the sermon. First of all, faithful to God's design. The faithful use of money is according to God's design, and that is, according to Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce. You probably know this was written in an agrarian society. Most people were farmers. And so the first of the produce is this. The crops start coming in, the tomatoes, the corn, the grapes, whatever, and you go out and you get all your first gleanings These are really the best fruits because they're the ones that have come first. They're the best fruits. You go get them and you tithe off those to the storehouse so the priests had food and they had money for the poor. When you did that, you were making a bold statement. Actually, more than one statement. When you tithe from the first produce, you're saying what? The work of God's kingdom is really important on the earth because you're giving your resources to it. You're also saying that God is generous and faithful uh, to, to me because He's the owner of all things and He's a wonderful provider. You're making that statement. You're also saying when you tithe the first fruits, that God will supply everything you need to enjoy Him. The paycheck is no measurement of how much you enjoy the Lord. That resides already in my heart. And when you give the first fruits, you're saying to the world, God has not withheld the first fruits of his love from us. He spent Jesus for us. And then, second use of, of faithful is it money which is full, use, use of money which is full of faith. And that's one of the points of the first fruits, right? If the harvest comes, you could get all the crops, you tithe to the storehouse. You turn your back on the crops. What are you hoping is there next week? What are you hoping is there two weeks from now? You're hoping the crops keep coming in so you have more food for the rest of the year. You are giving in faith that God loves you enough and is powerful enough to meet your needs even though you gave from the first fruits. He is Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. And he knows how to make things stretch to the end of the month. Why do they need to stretch to the end of the month? Because the first check you cut is to the Lord. When I do pre counseling, one of the last subjects we talk about is money. Will you make a budget? Yes. Will you stick by it? Yes. What's the first check you're going to write at the beginning of the month? Our check to the church. Check. Don't go into debt. Don't spend more than you have. Live within your means, all the couples that I counsel say, we plan to do that. Here's what it can produce. The kind of gospel-driven generosity Paul saw on the Macedonians whom he said that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, okay, great affliction, great affliction, tough circumstances, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, right? Shake and bake, put them in the oven and what popped out? overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave their own accord, begging us for the favor of participation in giving to the saints. This is one of the most unusual things that ever happened in history. There was a famine in Jerusalem. Paul's doing a collection. And these Christians are saying, we don't have anything, but we're going to give. Please, Paul, let us give. Please, let us give. Please, please, we beg you, let us give. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's unbelievable. But see, beloved, it takes faith to believe you're going to experience the joy of generosity. You don't know it till you write that check, and when you do, you'll also experience the joy of experiencing, you can't outgive God. How many of you know that joy? You can't outgive God. Do you know that joy? Parents, teach your kids that joy. Start journals. Give. Do examples, and they're going to grow up to live the same way that they saw you living. Paul goes on to say that money well used reveals the work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. What does Paul mean when he says, Jesus became poor? The poverty of Jesus is his discontentment. Not with himself. Not with his father. But with the state of this world. The sin and the rebellion and the greed and the materialism of people in rebellion against their father. Jesus was discontent to leave the world in that state. So he came to this earth. And asked his father, give me the poverty of your people. Put, your, put their sin on me, on the cross. Make me have nothing but judgment pain on the cross. To exchange, to give the riches of my people favor with you. Righteousness, forgiveness, a place in heaven. We'll really enjoy everything. Jesus could have said to his father, "How much should we give?" It wasn't up for debate. He gave it all. He exchanged everything to make you rich in his grace and mercy. On the cross, Jesus lost everything, beloved. He exchanged his safety and welfare to gain you as his eternal, precious friend and treasure. He lost his dignity to purchase yours. He lost his father to make God your father. He lost his sinless humanity to clothe you in his righteousness. He lost his moral purity, bearing your sins in his body, to cleanse you forever of your impurity. And he lost his life, blood, and breath to give you everlasting life. Faithful giving is not about guilt. It's about glory. The glory of Jesus, we're delighted to give to the God who did not withhold His Son from us. with pray, Lord, be. We...